Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. And today I'm coming to you from rainy San Francisco. If you've been following this podcast or my blog, you may be aware that I've been asking for reader and listener questions, which, by the way, if you have questions, you can email them to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. And I've been using some of these questions as the basis of the Q&A portion of the podcast. Now, one question that's come up a number of times that wasn't on my radar as one that I'd really anticipated is how I started storytelling with data. This is actually going to be the focus of today's podcast. But rather than just listen to me talk about it, we're going to take a little different approach. Let me back up a bit. So my husband, Randy, and I met when I was delivering my very first workshop. This was back when we both worked at Google, and he was sitting in the very first row and was quite participative in terms of asking a ton of questions. Now, Randy was a recruiter early on in his career and a director at Google, where he helped build European offices. He's been the head of HR or people ops for companies like SpaceX and Jawbone, and currently acts as an advisor to a number of companies around the world world. Now, he has interviewed thousands of individuals throughout his career and is known for being able to build and manage awesome teams. He's also just a naturally curious person, which means he's really good at asking questions. He knows me probably better than anyone else and knows storytelling with data perhaps better than anyone else. He's actually the one who pushed me to do this podcast in the first place and has been behind the scenes producing it. So we thought it would be fun to get him on this side of the microphone and have him interview me. He's sure to reveal some interesting things, and I've not seen his questions ahead of time. He likes to go off the cuff anyway, so I'm not entirely sure where this will take us, but I'm excited and hopeful it could possibly help inspire you to pursue your passion, an idea you have, or a new business. And with that, I'll turn it over to Randy. Thanks, Cole. Uh, before we start, one tip I can share with your listeners when it comes to love is that there is truly a benefit for uh, sitting in the front row and asking a ton of questions and, and seeming very interested. So <laughs> just a little tip for everybody out there. So I thought it might be fun to start out with you telling a little bit of a story for us in terms of thinking back to that first moment in your career where the sparks kind of came together and you thought about this idea about storytelling with data. Now, maybe it wasn't actually storytelling with data, but talk us through that that first moment. Yeah, so I think in in recognizing you know that there was something here, uh, that brings me back to my days at Google. Uh, I was actually at this time sharing an office with my colleague Neil Patel, um, and uh, he, he's since moved on to Amazon in Seattle. But uh, through a series of fortuitous events, Neil got invited to speak at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, which was sort of in our neighborhood up in the Los Altos Hills uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he invited me to come along with him. 
And so we had 45 minutes on the agenda. This was an annual retreat that they did where they'd invited a number of people from different philanthropic organizations. And Neil was going to speak for about 20 minutes on cognitive biases, and I was going to speak for about 20 minutes on data visualization. And so we get there, and it's at this beautiful uh, orchard up in the hills. It's a sunny day, and we're in the middle of this apricot orchard. And so we drive up, and we go into the lobby. The retreat's happening already, but we were there a little bit early. And the woman in the lobby checks us in and hands us each a bag of dried apricots. And a now, bag this, of dried apricots. Yeah. Okay. Which sounds like this totally minor random thing, right? But for me, it was like, hey, wait, I'm here. Somebody, you know, this group of people, they're going to want to listen to me talk about data visualization. And they even gave me a gift, right? I'm getting paid in apricots. Uh, and yeah, I think for me, that was the, the first reinforcing moment. Okay, and and from there, was there other like fruit-bearing gigs or <laughs> anything else come from that? Well, so it happened that there was a gentleman in the audience that day who was tasked with filling one of the speaker slots for the upcoming Grants Managers Conference, uh, which is a, na a national conference that brings together several hundred grants managers each year. Uh, and after the session, he reached out to say, hey, do you want to come speak to this other group? And, and was he paying in different fruit or... Uh, I think travel expenses were covered this time, which was Got sort it. of a step in that direction. And again, I, at this point, was so excited that people were wanting to hear me talk about this that I, I would have done it for nothing, probably. So getting my travel covered, uh, and it was in Seattle, uh, which is where I grew up. So um, it was a neat, uh, fortuitous circumstance. Speaking of Seattle, maybe it'd be helpful for you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing and um, where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up in western Washington state uh, in what turns out was uh, sort of the boonies uh, out in farmland and um, only recognized that when I moved to the big city of Seattle for college, uh, university I studied, applied math. Um, and from there, got my first real job in banking in credit risk management at Washington Mutual. Okay, and what were you doing at Washington Mutual? Uh, I was working credit risk management, uh, started out as an analyst, and that's really the first place where I started to recognize the value in visualizing data and had those first sort of seeds of, hey, when I spend more time making my data pretty, which is what it started out as, my audience pays more attention, right? My boss and my boss's boss pay more attention to what I'm doing. And it ended up being this self-reinforcing cycle where I would spend some time on the aesthetics and get recognition for that, which then made me want to spend more time on the aesthetics and started to recognize also the value that we can bring by visualizing data in terms of helping make it more understandable, more accessible to an audience and really using data to drive understanding and ultimately drive action and behavioral changes. Was this unusual, this combination of, uh, you, you talked a number of times about being drawn to the analytics, but also being drawn to the aesthetics and how things appeared. Is, is, is this a unique combination? I don't think it's unique, uh, but probably less common because I think oftentimes people who are drawn to quantitative uh, sort of fields get really comfortable crunching numbers and really comfortable with that piece of it uh, and sometimes shy away from the design aspects. And I think the design aspects that for me started off as a creative space in which to play actually become so important when it helps to really highlighting all of the number crunching that 
happens behind the scenes and enables us to communicate in a way that other people can understand and appreciate. So I think it's a skill that there could be, uh, there's great value to be obtained by more people recognizing that this is a specialized skill and working to improve their own abilities in this area. So let's fast forward. You're spending time with the exciting field of banking and uh, risk management, uh, and you now end up uh, with one of the most uh, popular employers, one could argue, uh, and that being Google. How, how did you end up at Google? Yeah, so it wasn't a direct path. So I actually took uh, what I consider a detour through Houston, which is from uh, Seattle. I joined a company, it was a private equity company that was investing in subprime banks, uh, subprime mortgage banks. And, um, and this, this is around what time? This is 2006, 2007. Good, good time so, to be in that business. Yeah, right before the financial crisis. And uh, actually, it was I just moved to Houston. And and uh, we declared bankruptcy on the bank that I moved there to work on basically the day that I closed on a house there. And that was an awakening moment for me and a moment where I, or a period of time, I should say, where I really had some self-reflection to figure out, okay, you know what? Banking is not such a... Uh, happy place to be right now. But reflecting on what skills do I have? What things do I want to be doing on a regular basis? And where else might I apply those? And so I started the job search over again, basically. And I was looking at quantitative marketing roles and uh, other sort of analytics roles. And I came across this ad for people analytics and thought, oh, hey, this sounds sort of interesting, right? What if we take data and we throw it at human re resources? And that was the job that actually was at Google. And this is again, what, what year is this? This is 2007. 2007. So let's think, what what's Google like in 2007 in terms of, you know, size, uh, things they're focusing on, maybe on the, the people side? Yeah. So when I joined Google, so this was back late 2007, uh, I want to say, so that's still the point where Googling was doubling in growth in terms of number of employees year over year. I want to say we were maybe like 12,000 people mm -hmm. when I joined. Uh, and it was also, so the people analytics team, uh, which was the team I joined there, it was brand new. Uh, they had just hired uh, a couple months before I joined Prasad Seti from Capital One, who had come in to run People Analytics. And so People Analytics previously had been a couple analysts uh, in compensation, a couple analysts in benefits. And so when Prasad came on board, they grouped all of these folks together and made a full-fledged People Analytics team, uh, which to my knowledge was the first time that there was a, a team like this. So clearly drawing from talent from the banking industry, uh, is it true, I, I remember also when being at Google that they were hiring a number of folks on the stats side and folks with PhDs. Was that, that in the original people analytics team? Yeah, it grew to that for sure. We had behavioral economists, cognitive psych. Um, yeah, so there were some very technical folks for sure. And so this is the time also at Google where they're working on some of these uh, programs that now I know you can you can read about online and and these truly kind of people innovative uh, programs. What what were some of them that you recall that are just kind of the ones that you're proud you had a chance to be associated with? Yeah, it it was a fun time to be there just because so much of the data we touched, no one had ever really looked at before. So it felt like you know there was this period of a few years where we were learning things almost on a daily basis, which was fun. But I think when I reflect back on some of the favorite projects that I touched or took part in. One that's been covered publicly that I can talk about here is the Project Oxygen study. And this was a study done on managers and basically what makes an effective manager. This was uh, work led by my colleague Neil Patel, who I mentioned earlier. 
And the, it's interesting because the findings actually probably weren't groundbreaking. Uh, rather, they reinforced things that, that we knew or that we thought to be true, right? Uh, an effective manager has regular one-on-ones with their employees, for example. But I think what made this really interesting was being able to ground these findings in data and doing that in a way that even, you know, the really skeptical engineers that made up a huge portion of the organization bought into. Um, and so that was really exciting. Uh, I also uh, touched very specifically the sales organization uh, after uh, doing that study and really trying to drive behavioral changes there in terms of helping design upward feedback survey where we get information on managers, helping managers understand how to understand that data and put it to work. So not only coming up with the interesting findings, but then also using those to be able to drive behavioral changes, be able to drive action, and basically make Google an even better place to work by helping make the managers more effective. Wow. So bridge the gap because you started with a story of giving this uh, kind of the first seeds of storytelling with data, you know, the workshop. So bridge the gap from you're working on this really interesting work to you're out getting apricots for a speaking gig. Yeah, so the the missing link that connects those two things. Uh, so at Google, um, and I mentioned right back in banking, if we think about even before that, this uh, desire to make the aesthetics work and spend time on the visual display of information. So I carried that forward to Google. And also at Google, uh, we were developing an internal training program. So it was an MBA-like program uh, originally for HR folks at Google. And I got asked to develop content on data visualization. So this was always a space that I'd enjoyed. And when I think back to uh, my team, people would come to me with questions or to brainstorm. And so I became sort of the de facto person um, on our team when it came to data visualization. Uh, But it was when we were building out this program that I really got the opportunity to pause and do some research and start to gain a better understanding of why some of the things that I derived at through trial and error over time were effective and figure out how do I teach these concepts, right? Teach about some of these best practices and things to consider when you're visualizing data to other people. And so this originally was part of this training program that I talked about. We found there was broad interest and so actually ended up rolling it out to all of Google as a course that anybody could decide that they wanted to take. And I had the good fortune to be able to travel uh, to a number of our offices around the country and around the world and teach these courses and also train trainers in other parts of the organization. I actually just got an email last week uh, from a gentleman in APAC who says, hey, I teach the data visual course today at uh, Google. Uh, so it's still going on today, which is fun to think about. Wow. And it's it's kind of interesting because you started in a very analytical, focused on making sure you can communicate with other analysts and that you're presenting the data in the right way to, uh, you could probably almost say today, you know, many of the people who buy your book uh, are coming from all different uh, industries, all different, uh, I mean, is that true? A sampling of your workshop would probably reflect that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's fun is the... 
you know, when you step back and think about it, the principles for communicating effectively with data, they aren't specific to a given role or a given field or industry. And so that makes my work really exciting because it means I get to go into all sorts of different organizations and see how they're communicating with data and see what kind of data they're communicating with. And so for me, it's an interesting lens into an organization um, because I'll often, before doing a workshop, I'll solicit examples from the group ahead of time and use these to understand how are people communicating with data today? What sort of challenges are they facing? Uh, and use some of these as the basis for some of our hands-on discussions. So it's an interesting way for me, I think, to stay current when it comes to understanding what sort of folks or what sort of challenges folks are facing. Um, but then also to just get such a breadth of exposure to different sorts of data visualization challenges and examples. You're, uh, you're running this course internally at Google. You mentioned starting to get into the philanthropic space. So walk us through this kind of doing it in parallel. Um, it's remarkable that you could actually do that and uh, maybe lead us to the point where you're getting to almost a tipping point that you think there could be something really special here. Yeah. So, you know, if we think back to the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, so I think I mentioned it was a gentleman from the Ford Foundation who brought me into the Grants Managers Network Conference. And so this was an audience of several hundred people who afterwards uh, each went back to their own organizations and there was positive word of mouth. And so in that first year, that was back in 2011, early 2011, uh, when I was at the conference, you know, had a handful of uh, workshops that came out of that. And then the next year is when things really sort of blew up. I think it was continued positive word of mouth. Uh, the blog I had started and was out there. So there was a positive momentum there. And, you know, you think anybody who goes to a workshop, they go home and they tell their spouse about it or they tell their friend about it who might benefit from it. And so it was in 2012 where I started getting solicitations from other companies to say, hey, we know you're at Google and you do this, but can you actually come help teach us how to do this as well? Uh, which was a really interesting turn of events. We'll get to that point. Uh, I want to back up to something you had kind of passed over, but I think for many of us was the initial introduction to storytelling with data, which was your blog. Uh, tell us a little bit about this decision to you know, be out there and launch a blog. Uh, was this your, your first effort at, at blogging? Uh, it actually wasn't. Um, so if we go in the way back time machine, uh, I used to do a blog called Cole's Kitch. Uh, it's still out there, but I don't update it anymore. But a uh, cooking focus blog. Cooking focus. Okay. So um, top two recipes that every listener has to check out. If you can actually find Cole's Kitch on what was the medium it was? Uh, it's on Blogger. Yeah, Blogger. Okay. So top two recipes <laughs> every uh, data viz fan should um, check out would be what? Uh, the baked blackberry French toast and know it. the brown butter chocolate chip cookies. Love it. Those are the two that I go back to most frequently. We come back to the Storytelling with Data blog. The real impetus for that was going to speak at this Grants Managers Network conference where I thought, okay, if I'm going to go speak at this conference, I need to have something to point these people to so that I don't lose them. And that was the blog that I ended up rolling out shortly before that uh, in late 2010. Uh, and so initially started with just some simple posts. And it was this was a way for me to share some of the things that I was learning through doing these different makeovers uh, for different clients. Interesting. And it makes me think, uh, I have a colleague who's interested in starting their own coaching uh, business, and they have some clients now, and they're getting some exposure, and they're trying to weigh how much 
emphasis to put on, you know, the website, the content. And, you know, I'm curious, when you were building it, did did you think um, this is here and it's going to help me attract people or what, you know, how should somebody think about that if they're looking to, to build and create their own thing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think my viewpoint would be that you have to have something out there to point people to. So you can say, you know, hey, check out more of my work here. And uh, when it comes to that, whether it's a blog or a website, the attention to detail there has to be extremely high because this is the first thing that people see oftentimes. Uh, And I think beyond that, the thing to focus on is making sure, and this is much easier to say than do, I get this, but making sure that your work precedes you. Um, Meaning that, um, you know, you do good work and that hopefully begets other good work. Uh, I've been very lucky in terms of just positive word of mouth uh, from the work that I've done. And that has become this self-propelling thing. Um, But I think if, you know, if I were going back and trying to orchestrate it, certainly speaking at conferences, um, you know, choosing conferences that have audiences that are like the audiences you want to reach, uh, being uh, finding a topic that you're very passionate about because that excitement uh, carries through uh, and then people get excited about it, right? It's funny because data visualization, I mean, to some people, it's a very exciting space. To me, it is a hugely exciting space, but it's not a space that a lot of people get really fired up about. And so that's one of the interesting things always for me is changing people's minds, I think. And I'll, I'll see this at the beginning of a workshop sometimes where, you know, there'll be a person or two where they sort of, you can see their furrowed brow and you can see that they're, you know, they're, uh, they need to be convinced uh, and uh, being able to win them over over the course of a few hours or a day, uh, as I, I think can be a really interesting challenge and really fulfilling when it happens. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, I'd love to ask you the question that everybody who works at Google seems to get asked when they make the decision of leaving Google, plus talk a little bit about uh, the decision to write the book and how you managed to juggle it all going forward. If you're a follower of Storytelling with Data podcast, book, or blog, and haven't yet attended a live workshop, you're missing out. These highly interactive one-day sessions cover the fundamentals for communicating effectively with data and storytelling, with hands-on practice and an opportunity to meet others interested in creating knockout presentations. So if you get frustrated when your audience is focusing on the wrong thing, you lose their attention after the first few minutes, or you just want to get better at telling your data story, then this workshop is for you. Join Cole in person in the first part of 2018 at one of her public workshops in cities around the world, including San Francisco, Charlotte, London, and Zurich. Visit StorytellingWithData.com and click on Public Workshops for more information and registration. Workshops always sell out, so register early today. So before the break, the question that often gets asked, would you agree, when you work at a place like Google is, and you decide to leave is like, why would you leave Google? Did you yeah. did you get asked that a lot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what was it like to work there? Why would you ever leave? And so uh, we have to ask you, so you have some good momentum going on talking to other organizations about this. Um, what was that ultimate tipping point to say it's time to leave? And what was that like? 
Yeah. Well, I'll say at first I was very lucky in terms of, you know, having a manager and a management chain that was supportive of me doing this outside venture. Uh, Cause I really, you know, for those first year and a half or so was doing it in my spare time, you know, taking vacation days to go fly on a red eye somewhere uh, in order to be able to do some of this. And they were very open in terms of saying, yes, go do this. Just make sure it's on your own time. It's your own equipment and so forth. Um, but when it came time to think about leaving Google. Um, I think for me, it was seeing this trajectory of interest uh, outside of Google and recognizing that, uh, you know, I'm not sure how long that's going to be there. And it seemed like the time to um, try something new. Uh, I also was about to go out on maternity leave with my first baby uh, and, and actually ended up going out on maternity leave much earlier than thought uh, when baby came early. But it was really at that point where I started reflecting on, you know, work-life balance, uh, being able to set my own schedule, uh, weighing the sort of pros and cons of having the the cushy day job versus striking out on my own and and doing something on my own. What helped to ease that? And I guess maybe uh, a better way to ask it would be, you know, you have a listener out there who has been developing something that they're excited about and maybe doing it a bit in parallel and wants to make that decision to, you know, give that up, give up the steady paycheck to go really try to, to do it on their own. Yeah, I think for me, the in parallel piece was key. Uh, I'm not naturally a risk taker. I, I wouldn't consider myself to be. Uh, and so being able to work up enough momentum while still having the support and the benefits of a day job was very important. I'm not sure I ever would have made the, le- uh, the leap if that hadn't been the case. Um, but being able to see that there is demand out there uh, and just at some point, you know, you know when you're ready to take a jump or make that leap. And, and I, I was ready for that, that next step. And how soon after? So this is, uh, you, you leave Google in? Uh, the spring of 2013. Spring of 2013. What did you do to start the engine going in terms of now I'm out here, I'm ready, please, please book me to, to help your company, you know, tell better stories with data? Yeah. And again, I think I was lucky in the way that it happened in that the engine was already running at that point. So it was just a matter of seeing, could it run at a capacity that would allow me to book as much work as I needed to, to stay as busy as I wanted to. Um, I think timing was really interesting as well in terms of, you know, starting young young family at that point um, that actually ended up being a really good reason to say no to a lot of things, uh, which was one of the things that I definitely struggled with early on. I think anyone who works for themselves um, probably understands this desire to want to say yes to everything because you don't know when the next inquiry is going to come in or when the next work is going to come. Um, But recognizing early on that I need to say no to a lot of things and really focus on where I can do my best work uh, is one of the things actually I think has has helped uh, with the success that I've had. And then the business model that starts to take shape because if I recall you tell us about the grant manager meeting where somebody's in the audience uh, or somebody's at the Packard Foundation and uh, somebody's in the audience. Tell us a little bit about how those early exposures to sort of this business model have evolved to the business model that you're using today with uh, storytelling with data. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the the business model today is a mix. It's a mix of public workshops and corporate workshops, where the public workshops, uh, an individual can register and come join. And this early on was uh, you know a couple hour session, then it grew to a half day. Now it's a full day, uh, where you know thirty or so people will come. I'll rent a space, do all the event planning around that, um, and come and spend a day with other people who want to learn about communicating effectively with data and telling stories with that data. And the public workshops are actually really an interesting way of creating more uh, corporate workshop demand, right? Because each of these 30 or so individuals then goes back to their organizations and says, hey, you know, I went to this training. This is great. We should bring her in here. Um, So it's been an interesting model in terms of um, always creating more demand, I guess. Now jumping ahead, so at what point does does all right? You've you've got a little, we've got a little baby. Uh, <laughs> you're trying to start this business, and then there's this crazy idea of writing a book, which is, you know, there's many of of, of books out there on writing books. This is a huge like I'd love to hear more, and I'm sure other folks would like to hear about the decision to actually write a book, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about your process for for doing just that. Yeah. So I think for me, the workshops, doing enough of the workshops and starting to see that really these lessons, they are industry agnostic and they're role agnostic. And I strongly believe that anyone can uh, become more effective when it comes to communicating effectively with data and using that to uh, create understanding and and drive change. And so with workshops, though, I can only uh, meet so much demand, right? I can only teach so many people. And so the book really is a way to get those lessons out there to more people uh, in more places or someone who may not be able to come uh, see a workshop. Uh, And also just to be able to archive some of the great examples and makeovers and, um, you know, describe the lessons in a way that can live on, I guess. And the the process itself when it came to writing the book, I'd love to come back because... um... I think the book, as you, is, if your initial goal was to, you know, reach a wider audience, I, you would probably have to agree that it's, it's done that in, in a way that's, uh, you know, exceeded your expectations. Or uh, tell us about sort of where the book's at today. I, I know it's in multiple languages, right? It's uh... yeah. So we're more than two years out. It was published in the fall of 2015, uh, and is still selling as strong as it was uh, at the get go, which is really fun to see. It's been translated into a dozen languages. Wow. Yeah. And then also I've I've heard that it's uh, used in a number of different universities as their textbook. So this is students are actually using this as part of their curriculum. Um, who's using it? Is this how widespread is this? Yeah, uh, a number of universities. Uh, I think 65 or so that we're aware of right now around the world, but in prominent universities, uh, Stanford, Columbia, Northwestern. Oh, that must feel great to have that that reach. Now, coming back to the actual book writing process, what, how would you describe, uh, let's back up, even the idea of, you know, did you write the book first? Did you get a publisher to sign on? Did you do, you know, tell us, somebody's interested in writing a book out there. Uh, tell us what worked for you. So for me, 
I knew what I wanted the book to look like. I'd taught enough workshops to have codified the lessons there. And so I had a good sense of what most of the book was going to be, even just going into writing. And I, I tend to be a very organized person. I make a ton of lists. Uh, I use post-it notes. I have post-it notes everywhere around me all of the time. And so for me, the process started out of just trying to get my ideas out <laughs> on paper and post-its and then trying to organize those. Uh, you know, I knew how a lot of it would be organized because it's organized the same way I organize the workshops, but then figuring out the other pieces and how those fit in and try to figure out how do I make this, you know, the stuff in my head that makes sense to me make sense to someone else. So did you write the entire book? Did you find an agent? Did you what, what did you actually do once you knew what you wanted the book to look like in general? Yeah, so once I had an outline of what the chapters would be, I wrote a sample chapter. And it was at that point that I really started to understand what sort of time commitment it was going to take to be able to write, uh, you know, what sort of mind share that was going to take and recognize, you know what, I think I can do this. And it was at that point that I pulled it together into a proposal and started talking to different publishers. And that's when you ultimately ended up uh, aligning with uh, Wiley as your, your publisher? Yeah. So I actually, I had taught a workshop for someone uh, at eBay who had a book published through Wiley. Uh, and so, you know, networking is good <laughs> in cases like this. So uh, I reached out to the client who said, and said, hey, thinking about writing a book, uh, you know, any words of advice or tips. Uh, and I did this, by the way, to others in my network as well, who I knew had touched publishing or written books to, to get that sort of insight. And uh, was fortunate that he said, you know, absolutely, let me put you in touch with my acquisitions editor. Uh, and sort of went all over the place from there in terms of looking at a lot of different publishers, but came back to Wiley in the end, which was the the first um, um, the first connection, I guess, that was made for me in that area. And what about your routine or your rituals? So people have different, they like to write in, in the evening, you write in the morning, maybe you can walk us through what was... What was your ritual like uh, for writing and how long did it actually take? Yeah, I, I wrote in chunks. Uh, and so, and I, when I first started off, I would write wherever I felt like writing on the given day to just get as much of it out as I could. So I jumped around. And part of the reason I did this was because I was pregnant <laughs> and uh, a baby was coming soon. And so I wanted to get just as much of the writing as I could done before then, knowing that after the baby came, I'd have bits and pieces of time, uh, smaller chunks of time to be able to go back through and edit and uh, do some of the refining work. Were there any uh, are there any tips or tricks of, you know, your room setup or anything that might be helpful for somebody who's trying to plan or map out their book? Yeah, I so this is when we were in our, our old house and I actually in my office there was this giant closet that had sliding doors on it and I had big massive post-it notes and I had a post-it note for basically a section of the wall or of the door that was for each of the chapters and then I'd mapped out uh, the sub content that I knew would be in each of those chapters and for me there was something about being able to see that upon coming into the office every day that would help level set me of okay where am I at what's been done what still needs to be done and then I would just find the piece that I was going to focus on you know in that 20 minutes or in that hour or on that day depending on what my time or availability looked like. Top three things you would tell someone who says, I'd like to write a book. 
Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think get organized first and foremost, right? You want to know how it's going to start and how it's going to end and what, what will make up the in-between. So I think the idea of writing a book and the practical physically sitting down in front of a computer every day and writing the book can be two very different things. Uh, so having that plan at the get-go can be great for keeping one on track. Um, I think setting aggressive but uh, achievable deadlines. So there's something about being too aggressive that can feel uh, almost hinder progress uh, in terms of trying to get too much done in too little time. But there's also something about deadlines that are too far out there that don't put on enough pressure. Uh, so I think there's something about finding the right sort of deadlines and chunking those in a way that makes it feel like you know you can work for a couple hours or you can work for these shorter blocks of time and really make progress against your goal or against your deadline. Um, because feeling that progress, right, because you really don't get full progress until the whole book is done, which mm -hmm. can take a really long time. So having sort of success markers, I guess, ahead of that um, can be uh, something that'll help, or for me at least, helped uh, keep me motivated. So it feels like, uh, and that's super helpful, it, it feels like a lot of these pieces have started to come together over the last you know, 12 to 24 months. You have the book couple years running, you're really getting momentum on the workshops, both the, you know, individuals who can come to a public workshop, as well as the, uh, the, the company level ones where people are having you come together. So it sounds like you have this awesome momentum going. I'd be curious, like, what about some of the setbacks or some of the challenges that, that, that you faced over the last, you know, year or so that, you know, maybe either put put you in question of like, you know, do I want to do this? Or is this, you know, this is frustrating or just, I mean, is it all been up and to the right? Uh, no, I mean, certainly there, there are, you know, there are happier things and less happy things. Uh, if I think about some of the things on my less happy list, um, you know, things behind the scenes that take up a tremendous amount of energy that don't bring forth benefit in terms of anybody else being able to do anything with that energy. Uh, I think a couple of things that stand out for me, uh, one is the bootleg book, right? People were out there printing their own copies of the book and selling them on Amazon. Uh, and for me, this was hugely frustrating because I'd taken such time and effort trying to make a quality product. And so to then see Amazon reviews, or actually I picked up one of these in, uh, it was actually a public workshop in New York where I was passing out the book during the break to participants and someone had brought their copy with. And I set down the new copy next to this copy that had been brought with. And the copy that brought, brought, been brought with was yellow and the printing wasn't as good. And so I start flipping through it and, you know, pages are loose and the binding is really gross wow. and realize that this actually isn't a real copy of the book, right? Unbeknownst to the participant, they'd bought it on Amazon. They thought it was, uh, you know, that it was, yeah, I don't know. So, um, and you know, there we have pictures of these. I can uh, link to that in our um, uh, episode notes as well in terms of just the, the poor user experience, um, which is really the thing that gets me about these I have these to just jump in books. there because it, it's funny that your, your frustration, you know, most uh, authors or creators would be, you know, frustrated, like I'm getting ripped off. None of the money, you know, is coming in to, to me. But like, it sounds like your biggest frustration was like people were holding crappy copies of your book. Yeah, absolutely. I, quality, high attention to detail. These are things that I pride myself on. And these are, I think, foundations of me and my brand. And so, yeah, no, that felt worse than anything. And, and what has, what's happened with that? Has that settled out? Uh, you know, people have bad 
books there there's less of them what what's what's happened what's the update on that yeah so um you know wiley did their investigation um also uh we learned that a very effective um tool for shutting down bootleg uh copies of books is to buy a book and have it addressed to something like testing for fake copy of book mm-hmm. uh, shuts them down pretty quickly doesn't uh, solve the overarching uh, bigger issue but at least uh gets people to stop from printing your book if they think that you're on to them. You mentioned a couple things. Is there anything else that was uh, of challenge? Yeah, there have been some trademark challenges as well. Um, I, I trademarked storytelling with data and uh, have been finding there are still people out there uh, wanting to promote other workshops uh, entitled with the same name and even using descriptions of mine in some cases uh, that have been frustrating, uh, but we're making good progress there. I think you wrote a, a blog post on that. So if anyone wants to look into that but any updates or any news uh to report on that yeah actually we had uh one of who we'd been going back and forth with for quite some time uh without any line of sight to a good solution um who actually recently came back and has said that they're going to change their branding change the name of their course uh so that's a good success so what's ahead i'd love to hear a little bit about where where you see the business at. We've got this podcast that is new. Are there going to be other new things we can expect? We've even read about uh, the size of storytelling with data changing. (laughs) Yeah. So I think 2017 for me was a year of figuring out, you know, how much can I do? It was the first year that I didn't have maternity leave um, and had a full year uh, of working and trying to figure out, you know, how big can I take this? um, And am I okay with that? Or do I want to scale and try to take things bigger? And recognized that I want to scale, right? There's a ton to, a ton of demand out there, a ton of potential people to reach. And that means bringing some other people into the fold. So in 2017, I uh, started getting some uh, logistical help when it comes to, uh, you know, setting up these public workshops, all the event planning that goes in with that, help starting to manage my schedule and travel and some of those pieces, which is super helpful. Also hired my first uh, full-time employee, uh, Elizabeth, who is in Charlotte, and she's been doing a ton of work behind the scenes on the makeovers and is going to start teaching this year as well, which is super exciting. And I think as I look ahead to 2018, uh, you know, if 2017 was about scaling and starting to put pieces in place for that, I think 2018 is a year of continued scale, but then also diversity and and diversifying uh, where uh, so much of the work, so much of my work has been concentrated on workshops historically. And I want to branch out beyond that and try some different mechanisms, right? Like the podcast here. I want to also look into other learning channels, right? We think about online or ways to reach other people people. Uh, We talked about university a little bit, figuring out how do we make the book easier to teach from. Uh, And also thinking to, you know, for folks who do go to workshops, how do we provide support after that, right? What else can we put out there that will help people feel confident mastering some of these skills? You know, whether that's someone who goes through a workshop or someone who, uh, you know, wants to learn on their own, trying to figure out how we can meet some of those needs. That's great. I want to wrap up with a few short questions that maybe you can just give us uh, some quick bulleted thoughts on, um, and we can go from there. So first of all, do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur? Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I think my initial response, is, if I go with my gut, is no. Right? I don't... Um... 
I don't think I see myself as an entrepreneur. I see myself as very lucky uh, and having worked very hard to build uh, what's turned into a successful business. But really for me, you know, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, it's about being able to share the work I do with people who appreciate it. Um, and so I don't know if that makes me an entrepreneur or not. Okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's a quick, quick question. So uh, next question. Does storytelling with data happen if you don't get the apricot gig? Oh, that's an, well, yeah, that's an interesting one. I think I can go back and point to so many things that if this didn't happen, then it doesn't happen. Or if this didn't happen, uh, no, I, I think without the apricot gig, I think that was, um, what do you call that? A linchpin? I don't know if that's the right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that without that, maybe it eventually comes around. I mean, certainly it still would have been an area that I would have been interested in, but I think it, it would have taken a different path to get there if, if the, uh, that initial gig hadn't worked out in the way it did. What's your secret? You are a mother of three little ones. Uh, what's your secret to balancing the demands of storytelling with data with three little kids? Yeah, that's a tough one. And I think part of the secret is just recognizing that there's never a full balance. <laughs> I think any working parent always feels like they're doing something uh, not as well as they could be. Um, but I think great help for sure, right? Having a hugely supportive spouse uh, who's sitting across me right now. Uh, without that, it would be impossible. Um, and I think I mentioned this briefly earlier, but the for me, family gives a good reason to say no to a lot of things that has been helpful not only in terms of uh, you know trying to reach that balance or um, balance it as well as I can, but also in just making sure I'm focusing on the right things, the things that are most important to me, which end up being the things I'm passionate about, which ends up then making greater product for everybody else. So it's been um, good in that way. Okay. Last question. Parting advice you'd give to someone thinking about anything similar to wanting to do something on their own and create their own business, essentially. I think if I can reflect on my path and offer advice, it would be to test it out as much as you can before taking a huge risk, right? Uh, I, I was lucky in, or I see myself as having been lucky in terms of working at Google and being able to test this out and do it in my spare time so that by the time I took the leap, it wasn't such a huge leap. I, I, I had a pretty good idea of what I was getting myself into. And then that helps take the pressure off of where is my next dollar coming from or where's my next client coming from in a way that allows you then to focus on the work that you're most interested in, most passionate about, that then helps spread good word of mouth to be able to keep doing that. So I think to the extent that you can test out the idea or try to put it out there uh, in a way to see if there's traction before making a big leap, uh, I think can be reinforcing in good ways. Excellent. And where can your listeners learn more on all things storytelling with data? Ah, so check out the blog, storytellingwithdata.com. You can follow on Twitter and Instagram at storywithdata. And we'll make sure to put all of the links to different things that we talked about in the show notes for today. Well, thanks for having me interview you today. This was fun. I enjoyed it. And I hope it was interesting and insightful for your listeners. Yeah. And thanks so much for taking the time to interview me, Randy. This was fun. And I encourage those of you listening to tune in next time where I'll discuss my single answer to nearly every data visualization related question that you can imagine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>